Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. It is hard to overstate the importance of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Written in 1949, this 800-page work chronicles woman's condition in exhaustive depth and breadth and is considered the founding work of second wave feminism. Because this text covers so many topics so thoroughly, we've decided to break it into two parts. And so today we will be covering just the first half. But before we dig into this massive repository of brilliance, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Faiza Parvez. Hi, Faiza. Hi, Amy. And thank you so much for organizing this amazing project and inviting me to participate. Hello, everyone. Let me introduce myself. I'm Faiza Parvez. And like Amy, I'm also a graduate student in the MLA department at Stanford. Before embarking on my studies in the humanities, I worked as a software engineer in the Valley for a decade, and my bachelor's is in electrical engineering. I'm originally from Pakistan and moved to the United States for college back in 2002. Awesome. Yeah, Faiza and I have been in, I feel like maybe three classes together during the MLA oh, program, yeah. and it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Faiza. So <laughs> Thank thanks you. for being here. Um, I also like to ask each guest what interested them in this project. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when you sent out the list, I was really excited by Beauvoir, uh, mainly because I have been interested in her for around about a decade. I have read her autobiographies, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, and Prime of Life. And I've also read her novel, The Mandarins, and her collection of short stories, The Woman Destroyed. So there's a period in my life when I was very much interested in French existentialism. I also used to host a book club in San Francisco on modern literature, and we used to read novels by Sartre and Camus. So, you know, the whole group, I, I was introduced to them through my book club. And yeah. then when my husband and I traveled to Paris, we also made sure to pay a visit to Sartre and Beauvoir's grave in, in the cemetery. So it was really nice to, you know, uh, I mean, not to meet them, but it almost felt like yeah. meeting them and, and seeing, you know, where they, we went to the cafes, where they wow. traveled. And um, so, so it was really a surreal experience. And I have read Second Sex before, actually twice before. And the whole thing? The whole thing. Well, wow. once was for our class with Jeremy, mm -hmm. and the second time I was at Oxford doing a research on gender studies, and again I went to this text for some, you know, research. And it's interesting that every time I come to this text at different points in my life, I discover something new. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, for your project, I read this text after becoming a mom, and I'm a mom to an 11 month old, and mm -hmm. was really fascinated by Bouvard's understanding of motherhood. And really surprised that I had previously completely overlooked this aspect of our philosophy. And this mm -hmm. is something that I would like to discuss with you today in yeah. our um, discussion, especially since you were also a mom of four beautiful kids. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and it does change everything, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, that that's a, a mark of really great literature is that you can return to it over and over right. at different times of life and new things that you that didn't stand out before have great relevance and resonance and um, I feel like this book is almost inexhaustible in mm -hmm. the material that you can um, learn from and so well that's really wonderful I'm so excited that you're doing this project you have such um, a 
more of an, a familiarity and acquaintance with the work than I do. So I'm really looking forward <laughs> to hearing um, your thoughts about Thank it. So you. thanks, Liza. Okay, well, let's now um, quickly talk about Simone de Beauvoir um, as a person, a little bit about her biography and what led her to write this work. So I'll take that part and just talk a little bit about Beauvoir. She was born in Paris it, on January 9th, 1908. Her mother was a devout Catholic and as a young girl, Simone was a fervent believer in the church, too, and she even considered becoming a nun for a time. Um, but she eventually lost her faith during her teenage years. Um, Beauvoir was intellectually precocious her whole life, even from the time she was little. She was fueled by her father's encouragement, and he reportedly would boast sometimes, Simone thinks like a man, which, of course, was a compliment. It's a little bit of a mixed, <laughs> mixed compliment. Um, but... Uh, the family was well-to-do, but they had lost much of its fortune after World War I. And because she could no longer rely on her dowry to find a good match in marriage, um, she took the opportunity of an excellent education to prepare to earn a living for herself. She attended a prestigious Catholic school. And after passing her baccalaureate exams in mathematics and philosophy in 1925, she studied mathematics at the Institut Catholique in Paris and literature and languages at the Institut Sainte-Marie. And then she studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. So next, after when she was finishing up at the Sorbonne, she sat in on philosophy courses at the, oh, Faiza, do you speak French? Because I do not. And the, <laughs> the École Normale Supérieure, it's yeah, um, perfect. <laughs> the normal school, the superior school, I guess, in preparation for the aggregation, which is the, the giant exams at the end of what would be, I think, the equivalent of like a PhD in philosophy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was a highly competitive postgraduate examination, and it serves as like a national ranking of students. And it was while studying for that exam that she met Jean-Paul Sartre. And I encountered this really interesting article in the New York Times written in 2010 by Judith Thurman that uh, talked about Beauvoir and about Sartre and their relationship. So that article says this, this is a quote, they met in 1929 as university students cramming as a team for France's most brutal and competitive postgraduate examination. Um, on their first study date, it says she explained Leibniz to him. When the results were posted, Sartre was first and Beauvoir second, and that forever was the order of precedence, Adam before Eve in their creation myth as a couple. I thought that was a really interesting analysis of Beauvoir and Sartre. Um, and at the time, it's interesting, she was the ninth woman who had ever passed that test. And she was the youngest person, male or female, ever to pass that exam. I think it's interesting that Thurman um, kind of had that angle of Beauvoir seeing herself still as secondary to Sartre. And I thought it was interesting, too, as I was researching for this and kind of lo looking up, um, kind of refreshing my familiarity with existentialism. And I saw all of these photos online of Sartre and Beauvoir. They were always together. They're with Che Guevara together. They're with Castro in Cuba together. They're with philosophers in Paris laughing. They're always together. They, they refined and contributed to and edited each other's work. It seems kind of as equals. But then as I watched little short videos to kind of um, refresh my memory about Sartre, 
Beauvoir was not mentioned in Sartre's biography videos, but Sartre was always mentioned in Beauvoir's. And so I just thought that was a really um, interesting commentary on how even in her own most intimate relationship, a lifelong relationship with Sartre, she actually kind of conceived herself and was still thought of in the world as the second sex, kind of second to Sartre. And she actually, on the Stanford philosophy website, she referred to herself not as, during her lifetime, she referred to herself not as a philosopher, but as an author. And she called herself the midwife for Sartre's existentialism. And it's only been posthumously that she's really gained the status of being a philosopher in her own right. And really Sartre's equal in what she contributed um, to philosophy. So it's interesting um, just to get a little bit of a taste of her self-conception, how she was thought of in the world. But back to her timeline, I guess she, uh, in 1946, um, Beauvoir began to outline what she thought would be an autobiographical essay explaining why, when she had tried to define herself, the first sentence that came to mind was, I am a woman. So Beauvoir was then a 38-year-old public intellectual who had been enfranchised for only a year. And that I, <laughs> that's worth repeating. She had lived her entire life in France until the age of 37 without the right to vote. In France, um, they granted suffrage to women only in 1945. Legal birth control would be denied to French women until 1967. And not until the late 1960s would there be an elected female head of state anywhere in the world. So this was a different time. And it's important to remember that kind of the, the historical context that Beauvoir grew up in. So anyway, she began researching for this essay and she wanted to start at the beginning of human history. And so her research expanded and expanded um, because she wanted to talk about the folklore and customs and laws and history and religion and philosophy, literature, economic systems. She just took on everything in an exploration of how um, the two sexes developed. And so this essay that she had first started grew into this gigantic project that became The Second Sex. It was published in 1949. It sold 22,000 copies in the first week. It was eventually translated into 40 languages and was placed on the Vatican's list of prohibited books, which I thought was interesting, but not surprising. Um, in 1953, the English translation was first published. And even from the very beginning, this edition was criticized for being not very well translated, that it was inaccurate and that it was improperly abridged. But even so, it took the world by storm. Everyone was reading it. Um, it gained a reputation of being a, a kind of feminist Bible. And it gave a voice and language and a framework to women's struggle. And I will, I'll share one more quote um, from Thurman's article in the New York Times, because I thought this was really relevant in terms of the whole project of this podcast. And this will kind of echo other previous episodes. So Thurman says, Beauvoir not only marshaled a vast arsenal of fact and theory, she galvanized a critical mass of consciousness a collective identity that was indispensable to the women's movement. Her insights have breached the solitude of countless readers around the world who thought that the fears, transgressions, fantasies, and desires that fed their ambivalence about being female were aberrant or unique. 
No woman before her had written publicly or with greater candor and less euphemism about the most intimate secrets of her sex. After the publication of The Second Sex, Beauvoir wrote many other works. She continued to think and write and work with Jean-Paul Sartre until his death in 1980. And at that point, she published an edited version of their letters to each other. Um, she herself died of pneumonia in 1986 at the age of 78, and she was buried next to Sartre in Paris, and which you just mentioned, you've been to their graves. So that's uh, an introduction to the author. But before I, th I think before we can dive into the book quickly, we need also a brief primer on existentialism, since that's really the philosophical framework in which Beauvoir viewed human life. So Faiza, could you talk uh, about existentialism? Yes, thank you, Amy. And that was a wonderful background to Beauvoir and her life and her project and relationship to Sartre. So yes, I will now sort of introduce the audience uh, briefly uh, about French existen existentialism. And I want to remind the audience, and maybe a lot of people already know this, that the roots of French existentialism lie in German phenomenology. And both Sartre and Beauvoir were introduced to this, you know, they were sitting at a cafe, one of the friends came and they're like, you know, we study at, at university, all this philo Arist Aristotelian philosophy and platonic philosophy. And but do you know about phenomenology, this is the new thing. And they both, you know, heard this spiel from their friend and got excited, and went on to develop their own uh, version, which became French existentialism. So what German phenomenology or the quest of uh, this philosophy was to understand life as one experienced it. The, they claim that a person is already thrown in a world, a world that is filled with things or filled with appearance of things. And I think uh, we hear a lot of Plato in, in these uh, mm -hmm. you know, terms. Mm -hmm. um, and what these appearance of things are called phenomena, which Greek for is a thing that appears. Hence, these philosophers decided to focus on this encounter with the phenomena, and the leading thinker of this group was Edmund Husserl. And later on, another you know, German phenomenologist, Martin Heidegger, who also stated that important question in philosophy is the question of being, what it is for a thing to be. So in other words, phenomenology was a way of a new way of doing philosophy that connected with the lived experience. And so that was very different from you know, the previous philosophical questions that Beauvoir and Sartre had been studying in university. So in existentialism, basically, is also saying that existence precedes essence. And, you know, if you flip this, this is uh, what, um, you know, St. Aquinas and, and, you know, the Christian thought the essence precede existence. So they flipped it. They said, no, it's the existence mm -hmm. that precedes essence. And hence, in this philosophy, there's no creator God that determines the essence for man. There is no final purpose or final cause as for Aristotle. Hence, humans exist first, and then they decide their essence, or let other humans decide their essence for them. Um, so Bouffard's perspective is often identified that with, as you mentioned, John Paul Sartre, who's the author of Being and Nothingness, and, you know, Bouffard's intimate friends from their philosophy student days. And Sartre's philosophy is also, you know, philosophy of the absurd, what he says, a man is a useless fashion, condemned to freedom, unable to find solace or meaning in relationships with nature or other people. Encounters with nature lead to nausea. This is his famous novel, Nausea, that, that talks about this. 
and and you know he has this famous statement hell is other people <laughs> but 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 an important aspect of this french existentialism is anguish and anguish mm. is seen as a positive term and why is that because in anguish in anguish is a is when a person finds meaning in their life or understands that meaning needs to be constructed and mm. and hence takes on action and and realizes that things have meaning that we give them and we are responsible for our own world and you know you will see that uh, Bouvard takes on this anguish term on the woman question right the women mm. what he says the woman is lost is that the woman is in anguish and out of it would come you know a positive outcome a positive revolution and i believe you will now dive into the introduction to the text that sort of lays out bouvard's project for the second sex yes exactly that was really helpful as a background um at just kind of getting inside her head and the way she saw the world so Thank you, Faiza. That was really helpful and perfect. So yes, I will dive into the introduction. So again, because this book is so long and so very like chock full of really, really interesting points, we're only going to be able to like barely scratch the surface. So I just chose one main point from the introduction and it's the concept of masculine and feminine. Although, you know what, I'm going to start with one quote first, before we even get to the table of con uh, contents in the book, you open, open it up and you'll see a quote by Pythagoras, who of course was the famous Greek mathematician. And it reads, there is a good principle that created order, light, and man, and a bad principle that created chaos, darkness, and woman. <laughs> and yeah, that's what she chooses to introduce the work, right? Is that pre-existing notion of what male means and what female means. And clearly for her, and I would say even clearly for us today, that still persists in the way uh, we view sex and gender in our world. So with that as the background, I'd like to introduce just one concept from the introduction. And I'm going to introduce it with a quote right from... Beauvoir, she says, the categories masculine and feminine appear as symmetrical in a formal way on town hall records or identification papers. The relation of the two sexes is not that of two electric poles. The man represents both the positive and the neuter to such an extent that in French, homme designates human beings. And of course, I'll add in there too, it's the same in English, right? It's man means humankind. We say man, and that is the default, kind of the, the neutral, but it's the word for the masculine. So back to Beauvoir, she says, woman is the negative. She says, I used to get annoyed in abstract discussions to hear men tell me, you think such and such a thing because you're a woman. But I know my only defense is, I think it because it is true, thereby eliminating my subjectivity. It was out of the question to answer, and you think the contrary because you are a man. Because it is understood that being a man is not a particularity. A man is in his right by virtue of being a man, and it's the woman who is in the wrong. In fact, just as for the ancients, there was an absolute vertical that divine, defined the oblique, there is an absolute human type that is masculine. So Beauvoir goes on to um, 
further develop this idea that men have created themselves as the neutral, the subject. She says it's they're called the one. And then they can see from their place of primacy, they conceive of the woman as the other. So they are the subject and the woman is the object. They are primary, woman is secondary. My thought as I read about that was, well, of course, in the Western world, if your creation narrative is about male father who creates the first human who is a man, and then from that man, you create a woman just to be his helper. I thought, well, yes, that's that's the whole creation narrative in the any basically any conception of humanity that comes from the the Hebrew Bible or from that Adam and Eve creation story. So Beauvoir also asserts that some women actually are complicit in this conception of themselves as secondary. She says, refusing to be the other, refusing complicity with man would mean renouncing all the advantages an alliance with the superior caste confers on them. She often derives satisfaction from her role as other. So I thought about that a lot, and I've definitely experienced that in my own life um, as I've talked with men and women about patriarchy. And I think in my own observation, this is especially true if a girl has been taught from childhood to derive satisfaction and pleasure from being a helper, right? And being in an auxiliary role, I think we all as children just want to be good and want to please the adults who teach us that this is the way, this is the right way for you to be. I tried to have a conversation about this, about gender equity once with a woman of an older generation, and she was very upset by it and saying, I don't need to have fame and glory to know I have value. I like being a help me to my husband, essentially, was what she was saying. And, and I think that's because she had been taught that that's what a good girl is. They're a supporter and it feels good to be a good girl. Um, but the other thing that was kind of implied in what she was saying was that she really at that period of in her life, she would have been completely unequipped to function in the world without the care of a man. And so if she had said, no, I'm going to be the one, I'm not going to be just the other. I'm not going to be auxiliary. She would have lost like Beauvoir refers to, she would have lost all her money, all her status and, and, um, she so she had to derive satisfaction from being secondary and think no that i am fulfilling my purpose because she hadn't been prepared or trained to be primary or to be independent in the world so those were some of the the more interesting points to me from the introduction faiza what did you think about the introduction yeah no those were great points amy and thank you for pointing them out so another uh, you know thing that i want to point out to our listeners who we want them to read this text as well is that mm-hmm. uh, unlike other French philosophy books, and I'm thinking about Foucault's, you know, tomb and um, Bouvard's second sex is very clear and readable and accessible. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, we are reading in translation, but I just want to point out that she is drawing a lot from Hegel's phenomenology. Um, she has Marxist terminology that she utilizes, you know, she says that her project is to discuss women from a biological, psychoanalytical and his- historical materialist point of view. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, this whole term of the other, the woman as the other, uh, you know, how man gains his authenticity is viewing the woman as the other, other or pushing her, you know, into somebody who is unclean and not 
sacred. And, uh, you know, that all comes from Hegelian terms. And she is using that in a feminist perspective. But but that doesn't mean that the text is is a very difficult read, or I feel like her points were very clear. And mm -hmm. her argument was very clear to me as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I found it really accessible. And I, I wonder, so when you talk about Hegel's phenomenology, and Beauvoir describing women as the other, would you just describe go into that just a tiny little bit more? What did you mean by that, Faiza? Because I think it's really interesting. Right. So in this, you know, comes the definition of eminence. And mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk more about it in um, in the history section as well. Yeah, that's true. And where, she, where, you know, she says that a woman is stuck in a particular role and she cannot transcend that role. You know, mm -hmm. transcendence is, uh, uh, you know, when you go out of yourself, when you are able to create, according to her, create something, a project that comes out from you. And mm -hmm. a man is able to do that. And these are all also, uh, you know, phenomenology terms that the Heidegger yeah. uses, you know, your life is a project. And and so there she says that, you know, men are able to be that creative force while women are not um, mm -hmm. because they are tied or stuck in this domestic labor, duties of motherhood and submitting to her by what she calls biological destiny. And we'll get, you know, we'll, I really want to dig deep into these concepts because I do disagree with her. But I can mm. see where she is coming from, you know, period of t time where she, when she lived in, like you mentioned, only one of nine women, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, and she describes her family life in her memoir, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, where her father said, you know, you're ugly, you're never going to get married. So why don't you mm. keep studying? Like, you know, literally mm, that was, that. you know, because she could not find, they thought she was ugly, will never be able to find a husband. So might as mm. well, you know, go support yourself. And so it wasn't a happy, you know, life in that way, even though, you know, so she had to prove herself through her intelligence, but that came at a cost. So, so we can see why maybe she feels the way she does about motherhood and you know mm -hmm. or why she wants to fit into the shoes where even though she is saying that it's the men who control destiny and control history she in a way is admiring of the role that uh, males have taken up because she's saying that women should take up those roles in order to transcend in order yeah. to you know um, create a revolution or become uh, get out of this, uh, this being stuck in this eminent state. So, mm -hmm. so that is the other, and um, basically the other that is not involved in that worldly project that the ma men right. have created uh, for themselves. That's right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, yes, let's not steal the thunder of the eminence and transcendence um, <laughs> discussion that we'll have later, but that's a great setup. So um, let's go into the history section. And Faiza, I think you were going to talk about those. Um, the history section is very long in many chapters. Um, but Faiza, I think you've chosen, again, just kind of the, the gems that you want to highlight. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Right. I mean, there's so much to, to discuss in the history section. As Amy mm -hmm. mentioned, there are five chapters. And I will point out, you know, the ones that struck me this time, especially like I mentioned mm -hmm. in the beginning, uh, being a new mom, I was really much interested in Bouvard's understanding of motherhood and how she views motherhood. Mm 
and I'll also highlight some other points that she makes in other sections. If, if you know, they're, um, mm-hmm. if people are curious, I, I urge them to go read them yourself. And, and it's just so much historical and literary. I mean, she uses examples from historical texts, from literary texts, from, I mean, philosophy, mm-hmm. from, from plays. I mean, it's really rich. Um, so, so yeah, so I'll start with chapter one and, she begins the chapter basically stating that the world has always belonged to males. And, um, and we are never given enough reason why is that so. And, and also she wants to understand how this world came to be. You know, so she, she goes on and reviews prehistoric and ethnographic data in light of her own existential philosophy to understand this hierarchy of the sexes and how it came to be. Why are the women, you know, in the lower stratum and men are the, the rulers of our world? And um, so, you know, she goes on and she mentions accounts by Herodotus and, and discusses the traditions of the Amazons and, you know, what he had mentioned in, in that. So to compare like, okay, maybe there was a historical period when women were more stronger or women, you know, were as equally violent as men. But then what happened? Why did the women become the weaker sex? And um, and so she has an answer for that. And the answer is the burden of reproduction. That mm-hmm. is what caused the women to become weaker. Um, so she says, this is quoting from her, as for ordinary women, pregnancy, giving birth, and menstruation diminish their work capacity and condemn them to a long periods of impotence to defend themselves against enemies or take care of themselves and their children. They needed the protection of warriors and the catch from hunting and fishing provided by the males. As there obviously was no birth control, and this is something that she alludes to over and over again throughout the text, Mm -hmm. and as nature does not provide women with sterile periods as it does for other female mammals, frequent pregnancies must have absorbed the greater part of their strength and their time. They were unable to provide for the lives of the children they brought into the world. And and she says that, uh, you know, women just never gain total anatomy, uh, autonomy from motherhood. And mm-hmm. she says like other female animals, but she never mentions which other female animals that gain uh, autonomy from motherhood. And, you know, so in a sense, you know, how women uh, become the weaker sex is through reproduction, is through becoming mothers. And she says that maternity has never granted women the highest rank even in times when society actually needed high birth rates, like during times of war. And, uh, and she says that uh, there, and this is where existential philosophy comes in. Like, why is it? Why is, you know, you would think that giving birth should be the highest rank, right? Why are Mm -hmm. we still uh, diminished from the highest rank? And she says is that is, uh, is, is tricky because, you know, we have to, in that case, understand what, is a human. What does humanity, what does it mean uh, to be a human? And she says that humanity is not a very simple species like these other animals, you know, that um, um, we see. It, it does not seek to just survive uh, as a species. Mm-hmm. It's, it has a very different project and it seeks to surpass itself. And this is mm-hmm. the concept of transcendence. And um, so, you know, so this is how she differentiates humans from the rest of the animals. Mm-hmm. So then, okay, so then the question comes, if, if 
if the goal of humanity is to seek to surpass itself, how come a woman does not transcend through motherhood, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and she claims that uh, birth and to breastfeed are not activities, but natural functions. Mm-hmm. And so we have to understand, okay, what does an activity mean and what is a natural function in, in light of her existential philosophy? So she says that, okay, activities and that they're not activities, but are natural functions and they do not involve a project, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is why a woman finds no motive there to claim a higher meaning for her existence. So what a woman does is that she just passively submits to her biological destiny and... Um, and, and, you know, she's just as duties of motherhood and housework, and she's condemned to this domestic labor. And this is what locks her in into repetition and eminence. So, you know, this is why she cannot attain a higher meaning for herself through, um, you know, motherhood, because she gets stuck in eminence. And especially in a time when we think, Women had to reproduce 10 or more children because of, you know, um, uh, the death rates were high for kids. So the woman, all her time is spent being pregnant or taking care of children and and, Mm -hmm. domestic labor. So um, so she claims that day after day, the woman repeats these tasks. And this keeps going on from century to century. And this produces nothing new. Okay, this (laughs) is there's a lot in there. And, um, and I, you know, after becoming a mom, do disagree with her, um, because I do think that, uh, you know, okay, we have to point out, Bouvard never had children, she did not experience motherhood. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know, she talks a lot about, uh, you know, motherhood or abortion and those concepts. So I don't know if she uh, maybe faced those in her life. Um, I don't know, I haven't read that anywhere. But because she hasn't, experienced it herself and I do think experience is so essential in existential philosophy I don't think she kind of understands motherhood she's probably Mm -hmm. looking at it from a more from you know a a masculine point of view in thinking Mm -hmm. it just you know another biological function like like defecating or like eating or like digesting Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. actually a very complicated uh experience and something that uh, does change you i mean you know bearing life giving life especially you know in the times that bouvoir lived when medical medicine had not progressed as as we you know are in our time but even then i feel I took all the medical help in the world <laughs> for my delivery. Mm-hmm. I still felt mm-hmm. like I had an epiphany <laughs> after I <laughs> delivered. And then my postmortem delusion, I, I had like all these thoughts that, you know, I sort of felt connected with all the mothers and, and mm-hmm. I could feel their pain. And I I was angry as, as to why I was never prepared, like all my work and my education, no one prepared me for this and why not? And how come nobody talks about giving birth mm-hmm. and motherhood and, and this paranoia that I I felt for this newborn and um and I don't think that um that nothing like she says that this giving birth produces nothing new I do think a new human being comes into the world and the new human being is very different from human being that came out a second ago you know from this yeah. one it's it's not a repetition like she thinks it is so mm-hmm. I do think there is that difference maybe maybe she didn't know you know, many mothers or the mothers that she knew were just so involved in their own domestic labor that she never 
could see them as producing something new. But I feel now um, there's a lot of new literature from women who, you know, or writers or, you know, or especially women who are giving birth later in life who are now writing about that experience and talking mm-hmm. about what it means. So I feel like, you know, but it's still good to know in Bouvard's time how this was viewed or how she was viewing this to sort of contrast with how that um, discussion has evolved and changed. So I still think it's essential to to read her and, and you know, discuss this part of her philosophy. Yes, Amy? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that was such an interesting um, and insightful summary of that part of the book. That was fascinating. And one thing that I noticed too, I don't know if you felt this way, but that there was, I was very often aware that I thought, yep, she's, she's not a mother and it would be, it would just be so interesting and so different. I think if she had been a mother and I'm sure she would have had a lot of the same critique, but it I wish we could have seen side by side if she had had children that would that would have been interesting but she she sometimes conflates um motherhood with domestic labor and both of those things I mean they're easily conflated right because especially during that time they were almost synonymous right you you got married then you had children and you were confined really to the house and doing work and one thought that I kept having through the book was and I actually I even brought it up with my daughters afterwards I said is do you think domestic work, feeding people, caring for people, even like caring for people when they're sick, is that degrading or is it ennobling? Mm-hmm. And my daughters and I had a really interesting talk about it because I thought sometimes when she would talk about the imminence and the that, like you said, the, the repetitious cyclical work that you never make progress, you're just barely kind of um, maintaining things. I know that in some cultures that's seen as seen as very ennobling. Like I think of the Amish and their their focus on the beauty in sweeping a floor, the beauty in polishing, you know, an object that you made yourself or caring for a child. And I thought um, that I didn't get that sense ever from Beauvoir in in the book that she saw much value at all mm-hmm. in the the ver- the human tasks of just running a household and investing into like the family relationships. And I've derived so much joy and satisfaction from those endeavors. However, I just think it's, I'll say, I mean, even speaking personally in my own life, I grew up um, really being taught and I would say nearly indoctrinated that motherhood would be really my only role when I grew up. And so I think the problem, at least for me, was being told that that was the only thing that I would be able to do and being told also that that was woman's work. Because if it's ennobling to sweep a floor, then it would be ennobling for a man and a woman. And why would you want to stop a man from having that beautiful experience of satisfaction or the man from caring for his child too? So I think in that sense, I I really agree with her project that it it is not fair to lock anyone into only imminence where they're only doing housework and they're not able to have a project and they're not able to transcend kind of the animal aspects of existence. Um, So I think the problem is, again, confining an entire type of person based on a biological factor saying, 
you and from a place of primacy saying i'm going to determine that you are going to do that work and i'm going to do this work and you're not allowed to leave your sphere maybe that's the problem mm-hmm. um anyway those were some of my thoughts yeah and also because you know a lot of this domestic labor that you know is unpaid labor mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. i feel that if it was paid labor or if there was some kind of subsistence that you would get from you know, all the work that women or some men who also choose to stay at home, um, even the government subsistence or some form of, you know, paycheck or, or, or something that you get even tax break or whatever, in whatever form, education mm-hmm. fund or something, maybe the view would change. Because there, I mean, you look at, you know, if you go in the industry, it's not like everybody who works in a corporate job is doing projects and is transcending. Some people are also stuck in eminence and doing day to day. And I mean, that's where you have Kafka, right? <laughs> like all the insurance agents is stuck in the same cycle. And so why is Absolutely. it that they are paid for that work, for that, you know, cyclical work and, mm-hmm. um, and not the women who are also, you know, you could say if somebody is stuck in a, you know, cyclical environment or, um, so yeah, so I feel like, you know, that would be a structural problem, a structural Mm -hmm. patriarchal problem. And I think that that needs to change. We need to make it a more flexible for people to go and come in and out of roles. Like, okay, not that a man is stuck in the corporate job and the woman is stuck at home, but, you know, both Mm -hmm. should have the flexibility to come and um, go like man to be more present at home woman to get some time to work outside if she chooses to or or you know if uh, and uh, and then also like you know you can discuss this in the time of coronavirus where people are supposed to now work exactly at the same pace from their homes their corporate jobs while taking care of their children and their mm-hmm. education needs like how why is it that corporations are not making uh, you know giving people parents flexible choices for work why is the expectation still the same from a worker so you can Mm -hmm. see that the society or the structure is not um is not uh forthcoming or not um lenient for parents for families it's more geared towards an individual worker that comes in and you know works till 14 hours a day 18 hours a day whatever non-stop weekends and and that's what you get rewarded for right you get rewarded um how many hours you work how hard you work which is fine but then that's the only measure for in our society only measure for accomplishment or only measure is you know you get paid a lot but what about the other measures for happiness which is family relationships which is positive emotions which is meaning making I mean you know there's a whole model that is discussed at Stanford even like they call it the positive psychology movement the PERMA model like all that is needed for one to live a happy and flourishing life we just Mm -hmm. only in our patriarchal world focus on accomplishment, focus on work, and don't focus on the other elements that, you know, health and fitness, you know, so so I think we need, like, you know, in discussion for your project on patriarchy, we need to incorporate the full model of what it means to live a happy life into our system. Until then, I don't think anything will change. I mean, what we're trying to do now is, okay, now women, not only as she's describing here, need to fulfill the domestic role 
but now also need to go out and fulfill the materialistic mm-hmm. role, right? right. That's it's right. like, yeah. you know, now the double burden. Right. And and she talks about this in the history section as well. And she talks about how women are even, I mean, this is in 1940s where she said, you know, women are paid less than men and, and the employers are really happy because, hey, the woman works really hard and she's yep. paid less. And I'm like, well, things haven't changed much, have they? No. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, so the burden just keeps getting added. And, um, and you know, and, and so, so she, you know, really talks about in the other chapters as well, that this differentiation that comes that appears between the sexes is from the institutions that are set up, the institution of property, the institution of inheritance, the institution, the legal system, like they're all favoring the male. And, and they really, you know, uh, state that women should have no role in political power or, or even like, okay, even if you put women as workers, they're not the ones creating the work. They're just like the underclass doing the work, right? So, mm-hmm. so when can women be creators? When will that ever happen? Maybe she thinks that, okay, once you put a lot of women in the workforce, maybe sometime, somewhere, you know, they'll, they'll reach the top and they'll be the creators. And, and we've seen in our society yeah. that hasn't happened. So there needs to be a really big structural shift and um, so, yeah, so those are some important questions. And and so, so you know, in going back to this discussion on uh, on eminence and and, you know, production of something new. So what so what she claims is, you know, how that that comes to differentiate what the role of men. She says that the man has always been an inventor since the beginning of time. And he's the one who lays the groundwork for the future. And women just sort of you know, rides along with him and he's mm-hmm. the one who breaks forth and creates new things. And, and his activities, she claims, involve danger. He risks his own life. And I thought, I chuckled at this when I read, you know, <laughs> he risks his own life. And I'm like, okay, you know, pregnancy mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and delivering a human being, is is that not risking one life? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, women were, you know, at that, I mean, I don't know, like, I remember reading one statistic that it's only recently that marriages have lasted as long as they have because before the average lifetime of a marriage was 12 because women would die from childbirth and it was so common. And so I'm like surprised that she doesn't realize like risking giving birth is the greatest risk a woman can take. Mm-hmm. So many complications can occur and you just never know. It's so unpredictable, right? And especially during, you know, uh, it's only now that things are more stable. I mean, even till the 40s, it, it wasn't. So so I'm, I'm sort of, um, I disagree with this statement of her. I think a woman does take on, you know, which is why we have this whole notion of white wedding and prince on the, you know, horse coming, charm, Prince Charming coming to, because you have to mm-hmm. imagine a fantasy land. To, otherwise, you know, why would a woman want to get married and have children yeah. when you know you're going towards your death? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that fantasy world had to be created for her. And it's only now that, you know, through the help of modern medicine that, um, you know, women are able to live longer and, and luckily, you know, give birth to healthy children. So, so I, I do think that women in that, you know, claim is opening ground for a new future with, with giving birth and, and motherhood. So I do disagree mm-hmm. with her. Um, so moving on, I would just like to point out that, um, you know, you mentioned in your introduction how she talks about the historical view of women. Like you had pointed out that, um, 
you know, line that she has before her, her opening of her book. And, uh, and it's really funny, like some of, you know, she uses um, these uh, lines from quotes from uh, saints and all like, you know, they say, women, you are the devil. You have convinced mm-hmm. the one devil did not dare to confront directly. It is your fault that God's son had to die. So, so, you know, mm-hmm. so she, she, St. John says of all the wild animals, none can be found as harmful as a woman. So she mm-hmm. uses a lot of these sort of quotes to, to sort of showcase the narrative that has been there about a woman and why she's been conceived as um, the devil and uh, you know this anti-woman rhetoric and which is why you know listening to that rhetoric over and over again you start believing that you are the devil right I mean we yep. we know that from psychology that the more you tell a person you are xyz they will exactly be that same thing that you're telling them and this is you know what she's trying to showcase and there's this one really interesting thing that she mentions in chapter three and I know you are um going to be discussing Virginia Woolf right in one of Mm -hmm. your episodes and she quotes Virginia Woolf and um, Aruma One's own and she talks about you know Virginia Woolf talks about what life would have been like for Shakespeare's sister supposed sister and you know and and I really love this and and I hope you bring it up out in your episode as well where, you know, Virginia Woolf says, well, you know, Shakespeare goes around, he's learned Latin, grammar, logic, while, while at the same time, she's just closed up at home and his, you know, he's total, living in total ignorance. Well, he goes around the countryside and he sleeps around with the local women. Well, but she, on the other hand, is mending in the kitchen under her parents' watchful eyes. And and if she, you know, bravely leaves her home to seek her fortune in London, um, she could not become an actress earning her living freely. Either she would be brought back to her family and married off by force or seduced, abandoned, and dishonored. And then she would commit suicide out of despair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she, all she could become is an unhappy, you know, imagined as like some prostitute or something, and that would be her fate. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of uh, really, you know, you could see the fate of women, like if they tried to transcend uh, this is what society would do to them. They would just shun mm-hmm. them. So it's um, it's not that you know women are lacking that energy, that drive. It's just that the society does not want to see the woman in an active role, roaming about London like uh, Shakespeare would would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so so then what you know the question then becomes um, how could a revolution come about for women? Right. I mean, she uses a lot of Marxist terminology, talks about uh, the revolution for the proletariat, you know, revolution for the African-American community, the blacks in America. So why is it that those groups are able to, she claims, you know, gain some successes while the woman is still is still stuck? And um, and she sort of blames uh, the bourgeoisie. She says that those women are too much integrated into their family. They are. They, they do not find any grounds for solidarity with the other women. They, they do not, you know, they want to sort of be aligned with the men or somehow they've been brainwashed to be aligned with their specific caste or, or she claims that there is a class system within women. And mm-hmm. um, so this is, again, an institutional problem. And, uh, and this sort of thing is, you know, uh, 
because the economic power and everything lies in the man's hand, so the woman sort of becomes that parasite to the man and the bourgeoisie woman attaches herself to the man and not to the other women. So for mm-hmm. her, then, you know, the the revolution would, would only occur if um, she sort of liberates herself from from this, you know, from this bourgeoisie society. And then only she could liberate herself from the male and sort of um, become a collective with the other women and then gain her freedom. To me, that sounds idealistic. (laughs) Yeah, certainly idealistic. But I guess for me, I'm just picturing um, kind of the continuum, the timeline of uh, women's history from the very beginning and now picturing her writing this in the 1940s at her particular moment in time I think I do think of I, I mean the, the quotes that you just mentioned that she's quoting the early church fathers and just and that she quoted Pythagoras at the beginning all of this misogynistic thinking that had really created the world mm-hmm. the way it was I feel like the point that she wrote this book incorporated and finally gave voice to so many women all throughout history who, I guess I I mentioned this in the introduction, whose voices had just kind of gone out into the void and that they had perhaps made progress in their thinking and in their analysis and their critique of the system as it existed, but it wasn't able to change anything, but because they weren't able to band together. Mm. And so the, the point that you just highlighted about women um, kind of um, aligning themselves with their men in order to just get through their own lives. They weren't forming connections Mm -hmm. with women Mm -hmm. enough to be able to create change in the culture. And I feel like her moment in time finally was able, I I, I suppose another moment and and we we did the, the, some episodes on, the 19th century movements in the Seneca Falls Convention in the United States. Um, There were other moments that came before her just in the century right before her where women were finally starting to form a collective consciousness Mm -hmm. that said, we have to band together as women and cross socioeconomic lines and cross racial and ethnic and national lines to be able to create a movement that can hopefully lift women up. And I, and I guess what I'm saying is thinking about the timeline from the beginning of this podcast project, we started in Neolithic times mm-hmm. and so does Beauvoir in her book, right? right, right. In, in the very beginning. Um, it's only been in the last like nanosecond <laughs> of human <laughs> history. When you look at the big timeline that women really have finally banded together and said, we need to do something that changes this, not just write in our journals and talk with our sisters and our female friends and commiserate, and then nothing ever changes. So she really is a change maker, and it's the right moment in time in the middle of the, the 20th century, but it hasn't been long that this has happened, which is why we're still in process, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think you're right, Amy. She does want you know, a revolution. She wants to weaken this bourgeoisie society. She wants the woman to be liberated from the man. And, and you're right. Like she wants the women to, 
you know, come in solidarity with each other, the working class women, the bourgeoisie women, the upper class women. I mean, they need, you know, to to not cling to their class class consciousness and their class privileges, but come mm-hmm. together, um, you know, and not be tied to the man. Because you're right, like she says that the narrative has been drilled into her. That if a woman tries to band with other women, this would weaken the society and, you know, you need to keep the society float as it is. And so we need to really question why these structures are there. And that's what she helps us do, right? Like you were mentioning that this whole history section, starting with the earliest periods of human civilization, she wants to understand why did this structure exist the way it, it does? How, you know, and of course, her sources are all... Um, like I mentioned, you know, Herodotus or or she's looking at literature, she's looking at plays, she's looking at Eastern societies, Western societies. I mean, it's really exhaustive. I mean, we haven't even touched the surface of all that she covers in this section. And and so it's a it's a, you know, I don't know if I call it anthropological project, you know, a sociological project. I mean, it's a she's trying to understand this question of why is woman a woman considered subordinate to man when she possesses you know equal faculties as a man like why is it that she has been weakened and why were these institutions created without her any input in it and and why is she still denied any access to you know inherit like property rights or or, or, you know, even in education rights. And, and so, she, so then she also points out how that change uh, occurs. Like she talks about the people who are in support of the woman, like men who are supporting the women, who are saying that no, a woman should be educated, like John Stuart Mill. I know you were discussing him as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these male figures that come about. So, so she really, and then the women lib movement that, like you mentioned, that starts the women uh, newspapers that start the women feminist groups that begin. And but what she also says is that some women sort of reject joining those groups because they say, oh, this is not part of our class. I mean, I don't identify with these women. So, in you know, they should look at the those women should look at the bigger picture of what is the goal of these movements and projects and join in rather than cling to their class privilege. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what she's trying to state in this history section. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, yeah, again, a fantastic summary of like you, like you've mentioned, and I'm glad you've mentioned a couple times during this hour, how rich this text is. So it really is worth, and if you're going to pick a section, I would go in and, um, and look at the history section because it really is fascinating. So that kind of um, wraps up this section, Faiza. That was a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you, Amy. Yes, this was such a delight. And the R passed very quickly. And we have more to discuss (laughs) in our episode too. (laughs) We do. So in the second episode, we will talk more about um, woman's lived experience. So we'll be discussing childhood and um, a chapter called the mother and a chapter called the married woman. And then um, we'll wrap up with just some of her overall philosophies and, uh, and our takeaways too. So um, if you can get a a copy of the second sex, I really recommend it, or even just looking it up online and reading excerpts in the time before you listen to the next episode, I highly recommend it. And Faiza and I will be back next time for episode two on the second sex. Thanks so much for being here on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Thanks, Faiza. Thank you, Amy.